0: Here at Waterstone, we focus on living and loving like Jesus. In practice, this means that we connect with one another, engage in justice, and serve sacrificially. We are so glad that you're here and invite you to join us in person. If you're able to attend weekend services, we gather on Saturdays at 5.30 and Sundays in person and online at 10. We look forward to connecting with you. A reading from Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. of many things. Come, share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown, gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked Lazy servant, so you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gathered where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, (coughs) I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. And whoever does not have... Even what they have will be taken from them and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The word of the Lord.
1: Good morning. We are coming to a close on the series on the parables. This is the last parable in our series, and it's actually the last parable that Jesus taught in the book of Matthew. And so I think it has extra importance and weight uh, to it this morning. Um, But before we get to that, did anyone see the story about aliens this week? Yeah? And okay, I know from some of you laughing, you saw. Uh, So there was, for those of you who don't know, there was a congressional hearing where three retired Air Force members testified before Congress um, about UFOs. And they basically said that there's evidence that the U.S. government has found and and acquired unidentified flying objects. And and the real, like, kind of scary thing that they said is that they found non-human biologics within those crafts, um, which basically is saying that, like, something alien and foreign was in there. Anyone see this? Like, I was just like, what is going on? Like it is one thing if you see stories about aliens on like the history channel and there's like crazy people in the desert talking about their encounter. But this was like C-SPAN. This was like the U.S. Congress wanting to know about evidence for extraterrestrial life. I mean, it it wasn't just the sci-fi channel. And and it just kind of stopped me. I was like, "This, this feels so weird. Like it feels so weird that we're just sitting there watching Congress talk about life that might, and now I'm not saying that I actually believe in aliens, okay, so you don't have to freak out that the pastor is like some conspiracy theorist. But, but what it did make me stop and think is like our world just feels like crazy sometimes, like just incredibly complex I don't know about you, but when I was growing up and watching Independence Day or other alien movies, I wasn't thinking that someday there would be a congressional hearing that's trying to decide whether or not that's actually happening in our world. It was just, it was all fantasy. And we can kind of throw this out maybe and like, yeah, it's aliens, it's Congress. Congress is always a circus. So what is it if we just add aliens into the mix, right? Like what's the big deal? But the truth is our world is incredibly complex, and I feel like it's growing in its complexity. There's a pastor, I've quoted him multiple times, but his name is Mark Sayers, and he's a pastor who's really fascinated with the intersection of Christianity and culture and how those two are interacting and where our culture is headed and what that has to do with with Christianity. And, And one of the things that he has talked about over the last few years is that we are moving into an incredibly complex world. And he just lists out some of the things that we've been through even within just the last five years. I mean, just think of some of the things we've been through. A war in Europe, an energy crisis, political unrest, a global pandemic, racial tension... The the redefinition of sexual norms and practices. There's been this rapid unhindered development of artificial intelligence, which that's a whole nother thing. We've had a border crisis, a cost of living crisis. I mean, all of these events conspire together to make our world complex and unsettling. And I don't know about you, but it doesn't really feel like it's slowing down. Does that resonate with anyone else? I mean, I feel like just the complexity is ramping up. And you think about how that impacts our daily lives. Like I feel like parents trying to figure out where to to send their kids to school is now a really complex question. Or, Or even just thinking about where you shop. Like I feel like it didn't used to be a big deal to shop at any department store you wanted to, and now suddenly if you shop at certain department stores, you're making certain political statements about what you believe about the world. We just can't go to Target anymore without people assuming things about us. I mean, it's incredibly complex. And I think as followers of Jesus, the question before us is is how do we navigate that complexity and be faithful to Jesus in this world that just seems so chaotic and crazy and maybe aliens exist now and we never thought they did before. And I think at the heart of this parable today, that's the question. You see, Jesus is is teaching and it's the last teaching he gives before he begins the passion narrative in the Gospel of Matthew. It's the last teaching, the last moment Jesus has with his disciples before he is about to be crucified, buried, and resurrected. It's before he's about to ascend. And what he's essentially telling his disciples is, is, I am inaugurating the kingdom in my life and death and resurrection, but I'm about to leave. I'm not going to be with you for very much longer. And how you live in between now and the time I return matters a great deal. And Jesus is calling his followers to be faithful and wise in that intermediate time where Jesus has gone away. And so I think this teaching, this parable that falls in this section of of teaching around Jesus is is really applicable to us. Because in a sense, it's an answer to the question, how do we live while we wait for Jesus to come back? How do we live in the complex world that we find ourselves in? Amen. (laughs) What does it mean to be faithful to Jesus? ...while we're waiting for him to return. And that's what this parable that Paul just read is about. Now, how many of you are familiar with the parable of the talents before... You've probably heard it's a fairly popular story. I've preached on it before to the youth of our church. And, and this is typically how the, the sermon on the parable of the talents goes. It is that the talents that the master gives to the servants are, are actual physical or spiritual talents. So God has gifted you in different ways, and He expects you to leverage those things for His glory. And so maybe some of us were gifted in And we can really sing really well. And so you're you're like a Maddie or a Dawn and you're supposed to use that gift for the church. And then other people like me, when we sing, people's ears bleed. And so the expectation is not that you're supposed to use that gift because everybody's been given different abilities in different ways. But whatever gift or ability you've been given, to whatever extent, you're supposed to use that for God's glory. Anyone heard it taught that way before? I've taught it that way before. I think it's a mistake, though, for for two reasons. And the first is this. What that does is if we believe that everyone's been given different gifts, and we do believe that people have been entrusted with spiritual gifts, what this parable does is it creates a hierarchy. What it does is it creates there are certain people who are really important to the kingdom and certain people who are just kind of like second best or maybe, you know, just like don't mess it up too bad. And so suddenly our importance within the kingdom is dependent on how much we've been gifted. But that goes against a lot of what Jesus teaches. Most of what Jesus teaches is that the the hierarchy has been broken down. It's not about our our abilities or our our giftings or our skill set that equates to importance in the kingdom. And the second reason why I think that way of interpreting the parable is a mistake, and and again, I've done it, is is if you really like get down to the brass tacks of the parable. If you think that, that Jesus gives us these different abilities, God gives us these different abilities, then what the parable says is that if you don't use your gifts, your talents, the way that you are supposed to, if you waste the things God has given you, then God will send you to hell. And we know from the rest of Scripture that that's not what Jesus teaches. When we believe that our salvation, our entrance into the kingdom of God isn't dependent on what we do, but what Christ has done, right? It's not about our works. It's about the finished work of Christ. We are saved through faith alone, by grace alone. And so it's not about what we do. And so this parable, when we teach it that way, it doesn't quite vibe theologically or biblically with the rest of Scripture. And so what I would like to do today is is walk through the parable and maybe deconstruct some of our ideas about how we've heard the parable before. And look at what Jesus might actually be getting at. Because I think when we get to the heart of this parable, we'll see... A call to be faithful to the time that Jesus has given us. So let's walk through the parable together and see if we can make it make a little more sense. Sound good? All right. So the parable begins and Jesus says, Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. And so also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, and I, I just feel like this is so funny, he dug a hole in the ground and he hid his master's money. Any Parks and Rec fans in the room? Like, does this make you think of Ron Swanson, where he just, like, buries all his wealth, and he's like, I don't know how much money I have, but I know how many pounds of money I have. Like, that feels like this guy right here. He's like, I'm just going to bury it under a tree and just leave it so no one can get to it. And so what we see at the beginning of this parable is that the man going on a journey, I think, is representative of Jesus, And he's coming to his disciples and he's saying, I'm about to leave and I'm entrusting you with something while I'm gone. And I want you to take care of it until I come back. And the scene that the rest of the parable then begins to describe is is the return of the master. And it's really a picture of judgment day when everyone comes before Jesus and has to give an account for how they've lived their lives. So Jesus from the outset is saying, I'm entrusting this immense wealth to you. And we've seen throughout the parables that that there's always this tone of generosity from Jesus and from God in the parables. He's, He's giving immense wealth and generous gifts to the people who are following him. And I don't think there's actually like a lot to to say about the five, the two, and the one bags of gold. I I think it's a way that Jesus is trying to build this story into a climax. It's not saying that certain people are better or worse or certain people have more access to the gift of God. He's saying that that this is building towards a climax. And and this immense treasure, these these talents, if you remember from some of the other parables we've looked at, one talent or one bag of gold is essentially 20 years' salary. So it's this immense wealth that Jesus, the person who received five bags of gold is essentially receiving 100 years salary. He'll never have to work again the rest of his life. Each of them receives an immense gift of generous wealth. And so Jesus goes on with a story saying, I've entrusted something to you. And so the question is, what is it that the bags of gold represent? What is it that Jesus has entrusted us with? And it says, after a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. This is, again, the the picture of Judgment Day when people come before Jesus. He says, the man who received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. And his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things, and so I will put you in charge of many things come and share in your master's happiness. You see the tone of joy and celebration in the master's return? He's gifted and entrusted his servant and and what his servant has done has pleased the master. He's actually turned what he's been given into like 100% profit. And the master is excited and joyful, invites him in to a banquet. That's the, the imagery of come and enjoy your master's happiness, good and faithful servant. And then he goes on and says, the man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. And his master replied, well done, good and faithful. Now, whenever you get to these points of scripture and it just starts to get repetitive, how many of you just like skip ahead? It's like, you just said that. Like, this is verbatim. Like, why are we just repeating? Anyone? Yeah? Okay, me too Sometimes. Now, that's actually a mistake. When, when the authors of Scripture are trying to repeat these phrases, or they're calling attention to what's happening in the story. And it's not a way that we typically tell stories. It, it feels redundant. It kind of slows things down. But, but what the author is trying to do, if you think he's writing on a, an ancient scroll, he's, he's got a limited amount of space. And so he's trying to highlight and embolden the things that are important in the story. And so when he says that both of these first two servants come to the master and they've both increased their profit, they've both done what they were expected to do, he's trying to highlight both their faithfulness and the joy and enthusiasm of the master. It's the key point in the parable. It's why it's a double emphasis. The faithfulness of the servant and the joy and happiness of the master at what his servants have done and what they've completed. It establishes a pattern within the story that then the third servant breaks. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown, and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid. And I went out and I hid your gold in the ground. And see, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. You see the break in the pattern? Where where two servants were faithful and they received the, the master's joy and happiness. The third servant, he went against the master's expectation. He, he didn't follow the will of his master. He, he didn't do what the master expected him to do. He neglected his responsibility. And the master is angry and unhappy with the servant who neglected to do what he was supposed to do with what the master had entrusted him with. And so we immediately see this juxtaposition between the first two servants and the last. And then the parable concludes, So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. Which always felt unfair to me. Like, why does the one with all the ten get, like, more? And why not give it to, like, the guy with just four? Like, then he could have a nice even five. And, like, that just sounds like, I don't know. For whoever has will be given more. And they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have, will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I don't know about you, but I'm not used to to hearing the word worthless come from Jesus' lips in response to, to people or servants. There's a harshness to the end of this parable. And remember, this is the last parable Jesus teaches. And it ends on this this note of judgment. It would be so easy for us to to try to de-emphasize the element of judgment in this parable. To to just maybe like skirt past it and and to, to ignore what Jesus is saying here. But I think it's critical for us to understand that that what Jesus is saying is intended to give us pause. It's intended to, to arrest our attention. It's intended to cause us to consider our lives and which servant in the story we are. Are we the faithful servant who did what the master wanted? Or are we the unfaithful servant who refused to obey the master's will? And it's also important to know that, that Jesus is using language that, that's intended to, to give imagery to judgment, not necessarily literally tell us what judgment is. In fact, in Matthew, this phrase, the cast out into darkness and weeping of gnashing of teeth, it's only used in the book of Matthew, and it's used six times. And the casting out into darkness is symbolic language that tells us that, that basically this servant was separated from everything that is good and light and God, especially separated from God. When we talk about weeping and gnashing of teeth, it's symbolic language that, that's intended to get at the emotion of regret. Like, have you ever wished you could go back and change something that you did, that you wish you had a second chance? And what this emotion is describing is the the sorrow and the anger, the weeping, the gnashing of teeth at regret, wishing that things could have been different. And that's where the servant who is unfaithful is sent. So what does this parable mean? And why did the third servant fail to do what the master expected of him? And more importantly, how do we as followers of Jesus avoid his fate? Because I think this is a teaching that's intended to warn the disciples, the followers of Jesus. Because that that harsh language would maybe be easier to swallow, wouldn't it, if it was directed towards the Pharisees or the people who are opposed to the kingdom of God? Jesus is talking to, to the 12, the people who are closest to him. And to the people who have chosen to follow Jesus, it serves as a warning. And, and so first to understand the parable, we need to understand what the bags of gold are. If they're not the, the talents and the gifts that we've been given, because we don't want the parable or we don't think the parable says that, that if you don't do what with good with what God has given you, then, then you'll be cast into hell. What are the bags of gold? What is it that God has entrusted us with? If you think about the context of the parable, Jesus is getting ready to leave, and he's talking to his disciples. I think what he is saying in this parable is that I am entrusting the kingdom of God to you. I am about to leave, and I'm going to be gone on a long journey. And when I come back, how you have responded to the message of the kingdom of God is what you will be judged on how you engaged with the responsibility of the kingdom I entrusting to you, you will be either rewarded or judged based on that. And the reason why I think that the bags of gold represent the the actual kingdom of God is because throughout the book of Matthew, any time the kingdom is talked about, most of the time it's associated with immense wealth or value. Think about the parables that talk about the kingdom of God is is like a, a pearl of great price that you should sell everything for to chase after. Or it's like a buried treasure in a field that when you find it, you should give up all the rest of your possessions to go after it. That the kingdom of God is always represented by the thing that is the most value, the most prized possession in the entire world. And so when Jesus is entrusting this immense wealth to these servants, he's saying, I am giving you the kingdom of God. I am entrusting you with my kingdom while I am away. I think it makes sense that Jesus is saying, you, my disciples, you, my followers, have been entrusted with the gift of the kingdom of God. And then the parable becomes about how we respond to the kingdom of God that we have been entrusted with. And and the servants represent disciples or followers of Jesus who who appear to respond in two different ways. The the first two servants represent followers of Jesus who heard the message of the kingdom and they they were bought in. They were all in. They they invested. They went to work. They believed that the kingdom had come in Jesus. And they were living their lives accordingly. But the second servant, he doesn't. He holds back. He's hesitant. The question is why? Why does the third servant fail where the other two succeeded to be faithful? I think the servant actually tells us within the parable. See, what he says is that I was afraid. I knew that you were a hard master. I knew that you had had reaped where you had not sown. I I knew that you had invested and received return. And I was afraid that I might not live up to those standards. You see, the the third servant, he thinks of the master as as some sort of taskmaster who's only concerned with the bottom line. He has this perception of the master that that he's a hard person to deal with. But if you look at the story, is that true? If you look at the story up until the point of, of judgment at the end, does the master seem like a harsh or difficult person to please? I mean, first of all, he he entrusts all of his wealth to his servants. He's happy to be generous and give them the wealth that he has received. And beyond that, when they do what he asks, he is incredibly joyful. He rewards them. He invites them into more. He says, I'll give you even more responsibility. He's not just after a bottom line. He's not just after profit. He's excited about entrusting his gift to his servants. It doesn't seem like he's an incredibly harsh master. He invites them into his joy and happiness, into a feast where they can celebrate all that's been accomplished. It seems like to me that the third servant has a, a preconceived notion about the master that's not true. He thinks the master is hard and driven person whose profit is all he cares about, and if he doesn't live up to those expectations, if he doesn't follow all the rules, if he doesn't do exactly what the master wants, then then he'll be punished for what happens. Essentially, I think he didn't believe in the goodness of the master. I just thought he was a taskmaster after profit, but but what we see in the story is actually even in judgment. What does the master say to the third servant? He, he basically says, "I would have accepted anything. Like you did nothing. You didn't believe at all. And I would have taken even the smallest amount of it. I wasn't expecting 100 percent profit. Even the littlest, slightest." Amount of effort and investment on your part was all I was looking for. It doesn't seem to me like he's an incredibly driven person until the servant does nothing. And then we see the shift in the master. He says, you wicked and lazy servant. And notice the reversal of language. Where before he says, you good and faithful servant, he he inverts that language. And what's the opposite of good? Evil. What's the opposite of faithful? Lazy. See, where the the first two servants were were faithful to what God had asked them to do, where they had had been entrusted and and went all out, were bought in. The third servant was hesitant. Hesitant and refused to do the will of the master. He refused to to engage with what he had been entrusted. And essentially what we see then is a self-fulfilling prophecy, that, that because he believed the master wasn't good, because he was afraid of the master, he wasn't faithful. And then he receives the judgment that he himself has sown. See, it seems to me as if, if Jesus is preparing his disciples for his absence, he's saying, I'm about to leave, and I am trusting you with my kingdom. Will you be faithful or unfaithful with the gift I have given you? You see, to be entrusted with the kingdom of God is is not just this uh, immense privilege, it's also a responsibility. To be entrusted with the kingdom of God means that Jesus has left us with a task of enacting his rule and reign, of living under the kingdom, of, of expecting the kingdom to come in our world and participating in the advancement of his rule and reign in the world around us. So I think what, it, what Jesus is saying about the nature of the kingdom of God is that, that God has entrusted the kingdom to his disciples. If we are followers of Jesus, if we claim that he is our king, if we have given him our allegiance, then he has entrusted us with his kingdom. Which think about what that means. We we talked about the complexity of the world we're living in. Wouldn't it be so much easier if Jesus were here to just like tell us what to do and and to, to enact the kingdom and to bring judgment and bring reward and do all of that now? To to set everything right in this moment. And instead, he has entrusted us with the responsibility of enacting his will, his rule, his reign in our moment in time. He trusts you with his rescue and redemption project for the world. That is an immense responsibility. The generosity that Jesus gives to his disciples... And we believe that Jesus has acted decisively in his life and death and in his resurrection, but we are waiting for the fulfillment of his kingdom. And in that waiting, Jesus says, I trust you to do my will, to do the things that I have called you to do. The question is, how will we live in the in-between? And as followers of Jesus, I think we should be excited and maybe a little apprehensive, and and that Jesus has entrusted us. We should recognize that the complexities of the moment we are living in, Jesus has called us to, to live wisely, to invest in his kingdom strategically with the time and place we find ourselves. And so, the cultural moment we live in, the circumstances of our lives, the way the world feels like it's reeling towards chaos, the way that aliens might exist or might not, and all the questions that that brings with it. Jesus has entrusted us with this moment to live for his kingdom and to advance his message to the world. That should encourage us to live faithfully, But it also means that we will be judged in terms of our faithfulness to the king. And that's the crisis of this parable, this last parable that Jesus teaches. One scholar I read this week, he he encapsulates the parable this way. The theme of faithfulness must be brought directly into relation with Jesus' teaching about the present and future kingdom. Knowledge of God's reign and salvation brings with it added responsibility. To accept the kingdom and its salvation is to accept a trust. It enlists one as an agent on behalf of the kingdom of God, and all those who are enlisted will be rewarded or judged in terms of their faithfulness to the task. He goes on to say that it's important to note that the, the two faithful servants, even though they were given different responsibilities, they received the same reward. And so what do we do in the time that God has given us? How will we be faithful? I think at the heart of this parable, it it comes down to whether or not we trust and believe that the master is good. You see, the, the first two servants, they were more than willing to do what the master asked. They had no fear of the master, and so they were able to live faithfully. But the third servant, he didn't live faithfully because he wasn't sure whether or not he could trust the master. And that feels very appropriate from the complexity of the world we live in. Because it's in the in-between, between the kingdom that is now but not yet, that often our faith is most tested. And it's often the circumstances or the the cultural moment we find ourselves in that causes us to ask whether or not we believe God is good. It's those moments where we wonder, okay, can I actually trust you? See, the third servant couldn't, and so he was unfaithful. Have you ever done a, a, a stress test? where they they hook you up to all the machines and and they try to test your your heart to to see the health of your heart, to to put you through all these rigorous exercises to see what strength is within you. I think in many ways the cultural moment, the complexity that we find ourselves in is is a stress test, if you will, a spiritual stress test, not of our physical heart, but our spiritual heart. Will we be faithful when things get hard? Do we have what it takes to stand the test of faith? Faithfulness is this idea that that we stand firm in our convictions and our beliefs and what God has called us to. Will we be found as a faithful servant in the moment we find ourselves in? or Will the stress and chaos of our world cause us to fall away? That's essentially what's at the heart of this parable. Do we have the faithfulness to stand firm in the midst of the challenges? Do we have the faith to remain faithful when faith gets hard? I think essentially at the the heart of this parable is, do we believe that God is good? Do we believe that God is good and that he is faithful? To be honest with you, After uh, we read scripture, and after we have the, the public reading of the word, many of us say the phrase, thanks be to God. And if I'm honest with you, there are some weeks where we read scripture, and this parable was one of them, where I want to say thanks be to God, and I have a moment of hesitation. Am I actually thankful? Like, do I actually thank God for the words Jesus spoke? And that was a moment for me with this parable. When it ends and it says, throw him out, cast him out to where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And it just ends. That's a moment where I question God, are you good? Do I believe your gospel? Because it, it's challenging and it causes me discomfort. And sometimes, if I'm honest, and this is your pastor saying this, I wish that it were different. But it's not. See, there's something inherent in this parable that Jesus is trying to call us to. He is trying to say that in this moment we have the opportunity to be faithful to his kingdom. That he has entrusted us with participation in what he is doing in the world. And how we choose to respond to that will be whether we are rewarded or judged. And can we say, thanks be to God for that truth? And I think we can. And here's why. Because after this parable ends, it goes immediately into the passion narrative in Matthew's gospel. Where Jesus sits down with his disciples and they come to the Lord's table. And he says, his body is about to be broken for the redemption of the world. And his blood is about to be shed for the redemption of the world. Then we see Matthew write the story of how Jesus goes to the cross and how he's tortured and and flogged and beaten and mocked and ultimately crucified and killed. You see, the, the gospel we believe, the story that Matthew tells is that we believe in a God who went to the place of the weeping and gnashing of teeth on our behalf so we don't have to that we believe in Jesus, who is the ultimate example of what it means to be faithful to God, no matter the circumstances. And if we believe what he has done for us, how could we choose to do anything else but be faithful to him, no matter the circumstances and no matter what might happen in our world? And so the question for us today that we have to wrestle with as we end this passage is what will we hear on that day? My prayer for each of us is that we would see the immense value of the kingdom of God, that we would devote our lives to it, that we would be all bought in, so that we might hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Amen? Heavenly Father, God, we come before you. And God, we do thank you for your word. As challenging as it is, as difficult as it is, God, I pray that today's story of the parable of the talents would cause us to lean in. That that God, when we realize that you have entrusted us with the rescue and redemption project of the world, the lengths at which you went so that we could participate and be in your kingdom. God, I, I pray that, that we would not be like the third servant who, who wasn't sure whether or not you were good, who wasn't sure whether or not you could be trusted. God, I, I pray that we would learn that faithfulness is so much more about the person that we love and are loyal to than the rules we break or don't break. God, may your spirit encourage us to live for you more fully. May your spirit convict us of the places where we're content to let what you have entrusted us wallow in the dirt. God, may this be a moment for our church where we pursue your kingdom more fully. And it's in the name of Jesus, the faithful servant, we pray. Amen.